Well, good morning, church family. Grab your Bibles, please, and turn to Galatians chapter number 5. Continuing our study in the book of Galatians, it's been referred to by many as a, I love this phrase, a ballistic epistle. (laughs) A ballistic epistle. Paul is having to handle some things that need to be corrected in these churches grouped into this southern region of Galatia. It's pretty remarkable what's happening. You see, they started well. Paul discipled them and and evangelized them and shared the gospel with them. So they heard about Jesus. They knew uh, that they were sinners in need of a Savior and put their faith and trust in him. And then some folks got in after Paul and began to teach them some things that weren't true. Remember, they were teaching them some things that they needed to do in order to be real Christians. Like you weren't really a Christian unless you uh, said yes to Jesus and obeyed all of the ceremonial and ritualistic laws of the Jewish faith. They were called Judaizers. And you may think, wow, does that ever happen today? I've just finished a book called Mission Affirmed, and it's about our thinking of our missions strategy. And one of the challenges that happens now with our mission strategy, uh, not necessarily Grace Covenants, but the evangelical church as a whole, think about this, we want to see results. We want to see missionaries go, right? And we want to see churches planted and folks saying yes to Jesus. And we want to see folks just multiplying. Multiplication is kind of the goal. It's what we want to see. And then you hold a Bible study with pastors getting together, pastors, Bible teachers, church leaders getting together, and you ask a fundamental Bible question, and none of the pastors in the region can get it correctly. Houston, we have a problem. It has to do with atonement. It has to do with the Holy Spirit. I mean, foundational, basic Christian stuff. So what happened? Well, they started right, but because they had a bad metric in place, they got off course. The Galatians have gotten off course pretty severely. We've used this word legalism a lot. I've tried to give you some different angles and ways to look at legalism. Let me give you a definition from Todd Wilson I found helpful. In his commentary on gospel-rooted living, he writes it this way, treating that which is good as though it is essential. Treating that which is good as though it is essential. I'll give you an example from my own family. We do a resurrection Seder at our home. Uh, We've done it for years. In fact, Erilyn was just asking the other day, she said, how long have we been doing that? Two or three years? And Ashley and I chuckled because she's been contributing and helping for that long, but we've been doing it for, did we come up with a time? Nine, maybe 10 years we've been doing it. Now, why do we do that? Because we want to show God how impressive we are, right? Hey, God, look, we're doing a Seder. We're not even Jewish and we're doing a Seder, Lord. No, no, it's not at all the reason. Are we doing it so we can try to feel Jewish? No, that's that's not it at all. But it's a wonderfully rich and beautifully um, textured tradition in uh, the Jewish community that when you think of it, looking through the lens of the resurrection, man, every single word takes on a different meaning. I mean, it's just glorious. So it's a way for us to teach about the meal that Jesus observed, right, with our family and teach of others. There's something that's good, but guess what we don't do? We don't have a requirement at our house that every year, like, 
you know, no, we have to do this. It's got to be done. Imagine me up here as your pastor saying, now, if you want to be a member of Grace Covenant Church, you will have resurrection saters at your house. You'll be like, what is he? I don't even know the words he's saying. What's he talking about? Some of you ask me after service, what's a Seder? I don't know what that is. So um, it's a Passover meal. Taking things that are good and making them requirements is legalism. And it shows up in subtle ways a lot of times in, in church life. As we look at what is going on here in the book of Galatians chapter 5, we want to recognize that grace, for grace to be at work, we, we can't take something valuable and make it ultimate. When grace is at work in our lives, we're moving away from bondage. When grace is not at work in our lives, we are falling back into bondage. It may not be drug addiction. It may not be something that would find us before Christ, but it's bondage nonetheless that Jesus did not put on us. This morning, we'll endeavor to see Paul's charge here to stand firm in our freedom, to avoid getting entangled in bondage again, and to make sure that what's essential to God is essential to us. Now, I want to handle my sermon navigation a little differently this morning because it's a lot of text, and there's a lot of rich things and a lot of different directions a sermon can go. I've got two points for you this morning on the sermon. You're like, what? And I'm not going to John Piper here, and one of them doesn't have 47 subpoints. I promise. That's not what's going to happen. But there's a lot of text there, and I thought it might be helpful for you to see how to navigate that text, a little outline that helped me navigate the text as I study the text come up with this high view of seeing what's there. Let's look at what we just read together, touch on some high points, and then I'll give you two points, I believe, of application that'll carry us today. Unfortunately, I don't think that'll mean the sermon is shorter, but it will navigate a little differently than normal. So buckle up, we're in hour one now, if you're our guest. I'm kidding, I'm joking. All right, as we look at verse one, let's look at it together. For freedom Christ has set us free. I'd like for you to just note there, if you wanna take notes this morning, Christ set us free. So if we look at verse one, there's a great header. What did he set us free from? We talked about this last night at our living room. What, what were we set free from? When we say the law, we have to be careful because the New Testament actually refers to all of scripture as the law. So we're not talking about he set us free from the Bible or from an allegiance to God's word. When we say Christ set us free, he set us free from those ceremonial laws and regulations that people had been enslaved to for centuries. Think about that. We don't have to have a bloody sacrifice every day to atone for our sins. Can you imagine... I mean, we've talked about trying to assess project priority here at the church. We've got a team that's going to come in at some point, Lord willing, and, and help us. They know churches. They know old buildings. And they're going to help us make sure we don't spend money on things we don't need to spend money on and that we put things in the right order. But, Dr. Hall, I was wondering about the carpet bu budget if we did blood sacrifices in here every week, right? We may have done a different direction with the carpet. And one of my kids said, that would really stink too, Dad. Yes, it would. Yes, yes, it would. So we've been set free from this sense of we've got to do something to impress God or to catch God's attention. We don't earn God's favor that way. We've also been set free by Christ to obey God's moral laws and commands on our life as the Holy Spirit works in us and works through us. So Christ set us free. That's point one. Well, it's not point one. It's the little outline, point one. The second thing I'd notice in verses two through four, if you're, you want to kind of navigate that, don't abandon your freedom. 
Don't abandon your freedom. Scripture's very clear here. You are headed back toward bondage if you say that obedience to the ceremonial laws and regulations is required for justification. Okay, that's what he's saying to them in, in Galatia there. But what's he saying to us? How do we apply that here? Here's what I'm saying to you. If you think that your salvation depends on you, newsflash, you're going to have to do it all. That means you're going to have to perfectly keep the law at all times. I'm not sure if you've ever told a lie, but you're immediately disqualified if you can, if you have. I'm not sure if you've ever taken anything that doesn't belong to you, but you're immediately disqualified because James says, if you offend in one point, you're guilty of it all. So I've not shaken everybody's hand this morning, but if I haven't met you yet and you've never done anything wrong, I'd like to meet you before you go. You'd be the first. But, but he's saying, you, don't abandon your freedom because if you're saying we've got to put all this stuff back on us, then you've got to take it all, meaning you've got to take on all this baggage. And if you could do it all, here's the kicker. This one stung. If you could do it all, you don't need Jesus. And if you don't need Jesus, then all the Old Testament build up to pointing to the Messiah coming doesn't amount to much. I mean, the law kind of invalidates itself if you say that's what you've got to keep because the law was a taskmaster to point us to Jesus. Wow. And then we come to the next little section, verses 4 through 6, that talks about faith in Christ. Now, let me just pull out a few of the things that show up here in verses 4 through 6. You can see it uh, right in the text. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. You're saying you're push. It's really the picture here is that they're pushing back so hard on grace, they're falling backwards into bondage. They're saying, no, thank you. I don't want any of that. I want to do all this myself. And you fall into the entanglement of bondage. Here's what faith in Christ does for us. It's pretty remarkable. It displays the grace of God. I've hit this scripture too many times in this study. You should have it memorized. For by grace, I love it, you have been saved through safe faith. Faith, awesome. So, so our faith in God is a gift of God's grace. It's just, it's just wonderful how that works out. Faith in Christ brings the Spirit of God. That's mentioned in these verses. It brings the hope of righteousness. It brings the work of love in our lives. And it brings about obedience that honors God. All this right here nestled in these few verses. Two more little outline points, and then we'll get to the main points of application. Here's a kicker from verses 7 and 12. You ready? God will not draw you away from Christ. Now, for all of us here, we go, well, yeah. Pastor, did you really need to take the energy to type up that point and put it on the screen? Well, yeah, because these false teachers that showed up here were saying, okay, you don't need Jesus. What you need is our system. You say, well, nobody would ever do that today. Have you turned on religious television? People are doing that with legalistic rules to the church. The other side of that legalistic sword, I would say, is the prosperity gospel. People are trying to draw people away from the sufficiency of Christ to be consumed with the here and now and apart from God. There are people trying to draw people away from Jesus and point to another person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. But when you look in Scripture, the Holy Spirit's job is to take a step back and always thrust us into the arms of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. 
And God will always draw us toward Christ. This is not a small thing. He mentions false teachers in that text that Jeremy read. They will pay a high price for their false teaching. False teachers always attack true teachers. Here's the other thing, too. When Paul makes that joke, or it's actually a kind of a, it really is a bit of sarcasm he's using there. For those of you that are saying, I don't want to be sarcastic, I want to be biblical. It's, it's actually in there. Some of it's in there. Now, not sardonic, like dark sarcasm, but there's a little bit of sarcasm in there. And Paul's saying, like, hey, what, what's their big deal? Like, they say I'm preaching circum. They said I was preaching circumcision, and now they're dogging me out because I'm not. Like, what's good? They don't make any sense. False teachers, if you actually listen to them with your Bibles open, they won't make sense. Their math doesn't add up. It just doesn't work. All right, the last part of our text this morning, this is your outline for you to go home and study with. You ready? Walk in freedom. Walk in freedom. Not for selfish consumption. Now, I'm going to spend some time on this. It's the second point of application. Not for selfish consumption, but serving one another in love. So there's the outline of the text. Not the way I normally navigate it, but that was so helpful to me, and I thought... Part of the job of the pastor and teacher, teaching elder, is to equip you to do the works of ministry, but also to put tools in your hands so you can read scripture and study for yourself. I love when Alistair Begg says to his congregation, you are reasonable people, search these things out for yourself. And that preaches well when you have tools to do it with. And I love that Grace Covenant for 31 plus years has been equipping with tools to study the word of God. So here's your two points. The first one, freedom's cost. Freedom's cost. I think the lion's share of this passage points to the cost of our freedom. The reason it was a big deal was not because it was a theological issue that Paul was trying to settle. The reason it was a big deal was not because it was some doctrinal thing that Paul wanted to make sure that he had lined up to impress the seminarians around him. The reason it was a big deal is because this freedom was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. He willingly laid down his life for your sins and my sins. Let me just unpack that for a moment, if you'll indulge me, and talk about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It started before the foundation of the world. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter number 1 that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world and he was made manifest in the last times for our sake. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And if I got any Awana families in the room, it's one of the first verses and one of the sweetest sounds in my home as every cubby it was one of the first memory verses they had. It's the second part of 1 John 4, 14. And that's the part they say. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. They would say it all that. Like, is that right? Yes, that's right. And yes, that's right. The Father sent the Son. Galatians told us, told us when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God planned this. He knew this. He saw this. And Jesus Christ, that third part of the Godhead, came in willing submission and obedience to the Father's will. Truly God, but truly human, and that human nature, he surrendered to the will of his Father. 
Jesus Christ surrendered to the Father. Jesus Christ's mission was motivated by God's love. I wonder if you've ever heard a verse from the Bible, even if you don't have a lot of scripture memorized, that talks about why God sent Jesus. I'll give you a hint. It's the 16th verse of the third chapter of the epistle of John. And it goes something like this. For God so loved the world. Love was the motivating factor. Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, God showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. We weren't looking up to heaven going, hey, we really need help. Would you come save us? This isn't working out. No, we were consumed with ourselves saying, I got it made in the shade. I'm in charge. Can't nobody tell me what to do. I've got this figured out. It's my way or the highway. And God says they need a rescue from themselves. I love them so much. I've got to interrupt them and send a savior. God had this all planned. Love was a motivating factor. Our sin made the cross necessary. The Bible tells us in Matthew 20 that the Son of Man, the King of glory, didn't come to be served, but to serve, and willingly gave his life as a ransom for many. In my study this week in preparation, I have to tell you, sometimes I'm pretty quick to connect some dots. Other times, you need to know, it takes me a minute. I pulled up this passage. I was really into this next passage, and I'm going to put the entire passage on the screen for you. I'm, and I'm in there, and I'm thinking, man, I've, I've just been reading in this. And then it dawned on me. This was from our reading this past week, if you're following the reading plan. And then it dawned on me, this is also one of the memory verses. Wow, this is pretty cool the way all this works out. wasn't my intention, but one of the best ways and best passages to display the cost of our freedom comes to us from Isaiah 53. I'm going to pause when I get to verse 6 and let you say that with me out loud. So that'll help all the young people practice before they come up front. Now Tripp meets me. He would meet me at 7.30 in the morning if I got here at 7.30. And I say, hey, good morning. He says, hey, I'm ready to say my verse. So he catches me on the way in and does it. But hear the word of the Lord as I just take time to read God's word to us. Listen to the cost of our freedom. He was despised, that's Jesus, and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Would you say this verse with me out loud together? Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let me continue in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression, there it is again, the sin of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet... 
It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Look at that verse on the screen one more time. Out of the anguish of Christ and the sacrificial atoning death on the cross, the Father would see and be satisfied. And by our coming to know Him as Lord and Savior, we would be accounted righteous because of faith and He would bear our sin. The cost of our freedom The Lord Jesus Christ, willingly giving His life, bought us access to God that we didn't deserve. The New Testament describes it as a new and a living way that Jesus paid for us to the Father. Galatians 5.1 For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Can I ask you the question, how in the world If you would put your eyes on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you ever entertain for a second going any way but Christ's way? Our second point this morning, freedom's call. There's a cost to freedom. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think in the latter part of our text this morning, we see the call that freedom puts on our life. Look with me, please, at verses 13 and following. You'll have to look in your Bibles. The verse is not on the screen on purpose. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let me put that summary back up on what it means to walk in freedom. I mentioned it to you before. I said I was going to spend time on it. Let me break it down for you. The verses that follow verse 13, 14, and 15. He's saying walk in freedom not for selfish consumption, but for selfless service. Selfish versus selfless. Christian freedom can be abused. Now the Bible tells us that we are freed from condemnation and we praise God for that. But the Bible also tells us that we can misuse this gift of freedom that God has given us. Romans 8.1, familiar passage. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 8.36, if the Son has set you free, you shall be free indeed. Praise God. But even as we walk in our freedom, in our new clothes of freedom, we are commanded to resist sin. This morning, we needed some fuel for our vehicle, our van. And it's an an older van. It works fine. It does great. Gets us where we need to go. But uh, it's, I think, about a 17-gallon tank, something like that. Have you been out lately? (laughs) Any of you getting receipts from your transactions? Or are you like, no, I don't want any record of this. I don't want to ever remember that I paid this much for gas. But um, the little club that we're a part of, it, it's your membership thing. You have to scan the membership card at the gas pump, and that lets you get, we get it for 10 cents less than it is other places. Anyway, so we scan the card there, and it's a membership card. Now, 
it, I, it won't just take the membership card. I still have to put in my debit card to actually pay for the fuel. I tried it one time to just pay with that. It didn't work. Our gift of freedom from God is not a membership card that gets us a free pass on sin. That's not how this works. That's not how this works. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 2 that we should not become entangled in bondage, addicted to the passions of the flesh. Romans 6 has much to say about this. If you want to make a note, go read Romans 6. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't obey your passions. Obey Christ's passions. Sin shouldn't have dominion over you. You're under grace now. Hebrews 12 says, let us lay aside the weight and the sin that gets in our way. Believers are called to resist sin. Grace results in freedom, but not freedom to engage in sin. Grace even gives us the ability to do some things that there's not necessarily anything inherently wrong with, but they may not be profitable all the time. Like there may not be a Bible verse specifically prohibiting this act or that act, but 1 Corinthians 10 kind of catches it when it says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. I find it disturbing. I have to say this as a Christian who's been a Christian now, alive, following Jesus more years than I was lost. I came to know the Lord as Savior and Master at age 16. That's not normal for a 16-year-old boy, but I did for a series of broken relationships. And I'm so grateful that God radically saved me. But I've got to tell you that since I've been in vocational ministry, preaching and teaching the Word of God, that every time, hands down, the majority of the time that Christian freedom comes up and Christian liberty comes up, hands down, it is so disappointing to me that I always hear the application in the area of selfish consumption. Typically, Y'all can judge me later, it's fine. In the area of tobacco or alcohol or entertainment choices or unwholesome talk. Every time I've not yet heard an American Christian talk to me about Christian liberty and talk about how it means they died to themselves for the sake of somebody else coming to Jesus. Not once. Not once. Every time it's been, well now you know I do this and I do that because I'm free in Jesus. You know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm sure people are just following you around, repenting of their sins as a result of that freedom you're using. I'm not here to picket sins. I'm not here to bind your conscience where scripture doesn't bind your conscience. I'm telling you, be careful how you whip out that Christian freedom card. Paul whipped it out for the sake of the gospel for others. Paul used that card. And that freedom so that others could be called to him. Not for overindulgence. Romans 14, 7 says none of us lives to itself. That freedom is not for covering up evil. 1 Peter 2, 16. Don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. 1 John 3, 6. Not for a life marked with deliberate sin. No one who's in Christ keeps on sinning. Like constantly doing the same sin over and over as an act of volitional will and not repenting of it. That's not how Christians act. Your freedom is not a pass to disobey God. Your freedom is not to live a self-centered, self-absorbed, consumed life. It's just not in there. And it doesn't mark any of the heroes of the faith that we would celebrate today. 
You've not read a biography of somebody who was self-absorbed and self-consumed that made an impact for the Lord Jesus Christ. In just a few weeks, we will celebrate Independence Day as a nation, July the 4th. There's so many aspects of America's story that illustrate clearly both the cost, I think, and the call of freedom. Toward the end of the Declaration of Independence, there's a summary sentence which places everything in perspective. And I meant to type it up for you. See if you can type this up while I'm saying it, Mark. I'm just kidding. Here's the sentence. Try to listen. I meant to have it on the screen for you. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, here it is, we mutually pledge to each other, these men did, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. No creed like that exists in any other founding document of any other nation. None. It's not there. And I dare say you probably couldn't get two politicians in the same room in the same party to pledge anything like that to each other today. It was a new and courageous covenant. Men mutually pledging their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honors. It's breathtaking and inconceivable at the same time. But as a nation wears on, not only do we forget the words of some of those founding documents, we forget the cost and need to be reminded. Have we forgotten that nine signers of the Declaration of Independence did not survive the war? Most lost their homes and fortunes. Thomas Nelson of Virginia directed that his own mansion in Yorktown be bombed because it was being used by Cornwallis. Nelson undertook himself to raise $2 million to repay the French fleet for their assistance. The war notes that he redeemed cost him everything he had. He died in poverty. This was his sacred honor. Francis Lewis, a wealthy New York trader, lost everything he had. His wife was thrown into prison and died shortly after her release. Richard Stockton of New Jersey, a Princeton graduate, lost every dime of his wealth, all of his property, and his magnificent library. He was in prison and died in prison. Just a few that paid a high cost for our freedom as a nation. Paul's looking at the Galatians and says, how in the world could you think about taking on anything but the way of Christ? Nobody's paid a cost for you like Jesus did. The old timers would say it this way, is the life that you're living now worth Jesus dying for? As grace becomes our way of life, or we engage in grace living, we need to remember freedom's cost. Freedom's cost. I'm going to ask Julia to come to the piano as we have a moment of reflection. Remember freedom's cross. Remember the sacrificial death of the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ. His burial because he was dead. And thank God his resurrection on the third day. He loved us so much in that while we were yet sinners, he still died for us. We need to remember freedom's call. It's not for selfish consumption. It's for selfless service, to love and serve one another as the family of God, the very body of Christ. Every single day that God gives you breath, 
is a new opportunity for you to live and breathe the freedom that Christ has given you. How will you spend it? For his glory? For his honor? There's an old song that the Gaithers wrote. I'm not expecting you to play this. Old song that the Gaithers wrote, although Mark did get that quote up pretty fast, so pressure's on. Just kidding. That I love, and it says, Thank God I am free, free, free from this world of sin. I've been washed in the blood of Jesus. I've been born again. Hallelujah. I'm saved, saved, saved by his marvelous grace. I'm so glad I found out he would bring me out and show me the way. Christ is calling us to the way of grace today. Let's pray. Grace, Lord, your grace that pardons and cleanses within. Grace that is greater than all of our sin, Lord, call us to walk in freedom as we leave this place today, as we love and selflessly serve one another. Lord, call us to constantly have in the forefront of our minds the cost of our freedom, the precious gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died, took our sin, our shame, took the worst of us, on the cross so that the best of him could be laid on us. Thank you, Lord, for freedom you've set us free. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen.